трибунах олеют знамена, Облака поднебесьи плывут. Hello and welcome to the Russian Football News Podcast presented to you by RussianFootballNews.com. We've got some really interesting topics on the pod today, so hopefully uh, you'll enjoy it as much as we enjoy discussing it. Um, Joining me today are uh, two two guests who have got vast podcast experience now, great knowledge of Russian football, so it should be a great show. Uh, First of all, we've got David Sanson. How are you? I'm all right, thank you. Good stuff. And we've got um, recently, not quite new these days, but recently appointed uh, editor-in-chief of the website. That's James Nichols. How are you, James? Good evening. I'm good. Thanks. I'm good. Good stuff. So let's just get straight down to business then. And James, I, th- I think I'll come to you first on this because we're going to talk about Spartak and we're going to talk about new managerial appointment. Uh, of course, Massimo Carrera booted out a few weeks ago and then we've had uh, Oleg Kononov, who's left Arsenal Tula to come to Spartak. So as a Spartak man yourself, what's your first impressions on this appointment, really? Well, to be honest, Carrera didn't need to be fired. Uh, I was very much against the sacking at the time. Um, Conanov was a little bit of an underwhelming appointment, but to be perfectly honest, there's not much choice out there for Spart- for, Spart- for Fadun to replace Carrera in the first place, which makes this, his sacking even more ridiculous than it is. I mean... They could have went on the foreign manager managerial route again, but that's that was very unlikely. Coming out um, news coming out of the club of a lot of Spartak veterans and people involved in the hierarchy wanted them to play a more Spartak way in huge abbreviated abbreviation marks with a more like with a with a Russian approach, and they felt like getting a, a domestic manager in would kind of try and heal the little divide within the squad with Kushikov and Yashenka. Obviously, they they were suspended by Carrera, but back on uh, just I mean, Kolonov was a little has been a little bit successful with Krasnodar in the past, and he's doing all right with Arsenal Tula, but I just don't think he's going to be able to turn the situation around and actually make Spartak competitive again in the near future. For me, it's just a salvage job of seeing what they can get out for the rest of the season and hoping that they can somehow qualify for Europe. Obviously, I don't really have any Spartak uh, colours nailed to the mask here, but mask even. Uh, but David, to me, I mean, James talks about it being a, quite a weird appointment, but I actually tend to go the opposite way. I think proven coach in the, the Russian Premier League. And my question to you would be, we've, with Arsenal Tula this season, just a, cu- a couple of stats that sort of back me up here. We talk about the Spartak way, which is whatever that is, but it's all free-flowing or whatever we call it, you know, nice attacking football. Tula scored 19 goals this season. That's proportionally high compared to the rest of the Premier League and it's certainly more than Spartak who only have 14 so for me I'm thinking experienced RPL manager reputation and he had a good reputation at uh, Krasnodar where he did very well until he fell out with the board that was all very funny of course been a bit possibly under the radar recently but I think actually this is quite a good appointment by the club yeah I think as James said they could have done a lot worse I mean obviously in the first it's not ideal obviously getting rid of career in the first place it was a bit of a it'd been building but it was very unnecessary. Um, but then you had Riancho come in as caretaker, and he he seemed like a, a wild card. And I, I think if they chosen to take him on as the full time manager, that would have been even worse for the club. So I think Kononov, out of the you know options that are available, is not a bad option. Um, as you said, he he had a good spell with Krasnodar a few years back, and then sort of fell out with Galitsky. He didn't. I don't think he got sat there. I think he just literally fell out with Galitsky and. And left not due to bad performance, but literally it was just left because of that. 
I think it's sorry, sorry, Dan. I think it's one of those where they say mutual consent, but actually it's yeah. not mutual consent, you know. Then uh, I think he had a spell with uh, Akmat, I think, or Tarek. I think they might have been Tarek at the time. Didn't do so well there. But then, yeah, he's, uh, he's done all right this season with Arsenal. He's, he's uh, been using a lot of the younger players this season and playing some good counter-attacking football. So um, I think it bodes well considering how Spartak have operated this season. Obviously, they've there's been rumours of that they've been, the career was told he has to use certain amounts of academy players on the pitch. And that's why we saw players like Lomovitsky, Ignatov, uh, Raskazov, all being used, and Maximenko, of course, all being used quite heavily. Um, so you could see uh, Kononov coming in and maybe carrying on that ethos because he was using a lot of the younger players at Tula as well. Uh, Riancho came in and immediately restored Glushikov and Yashenko to the first team, uh, which saw you know lots of negative reaction from the Spartan fans. You know they boycotted the games, they booed Glushikov and Riancho throughout the matches as well. So um, hopefully Connolly coming in will just help to repair things a bit, as you know, as long as there doesn't seem to be too much interference from above. Um, we'll see, of course, this weekend whether. Glushkov and Yashenko keep their place in amongst the first team. Maybe it's something that is going to be forced upon him. Maybe he's the only one who would come in and agree to whatever perhaps the board want him to do for the team. Um, but yeah, I think it's not a bad... If he's allowed to do what he wants, then it's a, it's not a bad uh, appointment. And James, being being your, your, in your Spartak nature, does that... Because David alludes to it quite a bit there. I mean, he alludes to a couple of things, talks about uh, falling out with the board at Krasnodar and whether Spartak would allow him the control. And also, is this really sort of a bit of a short-term appointment, really? I think it's just it's just a stable, safe appointment. There's Kononov, I mean, Fadoon's obviously been looking for somebody who was a lot less fiery than Carrera, someone who was a lot less popular with the fans, actually. Uh, for, Carrera was that popular with the fans, is uh, putting Fadoon in quite a difficult position every single time. They had a falling out, which is often. Uh, but it seems it's just it's just a, an appointment where it, it it's it's a easy yes man. Like is Kononov's never really had a particular managerial style except for just stick the one thing. I mean, he's, he's, he does set a team up quite solid defensively and does counter attack often, but. At Krasnodar, it was a possession-based football, like football that was imposed upon him from above. And Terek was the old three at the back, sit deep, defend first and everything, and then go long, long up top, direct balls into the channels. It was exactly the same as Rakimov had him playing before he took over. So it's just, he seems to be very much a yes man where the, the owner says, oh, you come in, we want to play this way, want to do this, do this. And he's like, yep, I'll do that. Yes, I'll do this. And that's exactly what Lena Fadoon wants right now. I mean, Kolonov got the job because of probably four main factors of that. He's he's a Russian-speaking specialist. He fits Spartak style in the sense that Spartak style of... To be honest, I don't really know what Spartak style is except for just exciting, attacking football based with a general, general Russian core of academy graduates, which is obviously why Fadoon is imposing this three graduates on the pitch at any one time idea. But he... He got the job because essentially Valeri Karpin refused to go back to Spartak. He's, he's got a vision at Rostov. He's doing quite well so far this year. And he, he, he just turned it down. He didn't want to enter the horror show at the moment. But I agree. I think it is just, it just smacks of short-termism. 
Just let's get get Carrera out the door. Get somebody in. We'll do the board's bidding. Try and re- reunite the squad to an extent, and just hope for the best. Really. Just um, just going to challenge you on a couple of things, James, because I just thought of it while you're you're saying them. I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you to sort of back up a bit more. Hope you don't mind, because you talk about the being a bit of a safe appointment. I would say, is that not what's required at the moment? Because you've had this whole furore around Carrera. Need somebody to come in now, just stabilise the ship a bit, even if it is just to the... I know I sort of made the short-term point, but even if it is just to the end of the season. And also, on the Carpin thing, I'm thinking that actually might not have been such a good appointment. I mean, obviously you want to stay at Rostov as well, but also I'm thinking, would the expectations have been too high with Carpin coming in? And actually with Kononov, they'll be a lot more settled, and therefore, again, that's that stability. Well, there would have been hype around Carpin's appointment. Obviously, he's a club legend, but it's a lot of Spartak fans are kind of mixed on Carpin. Love him as a player, but not really fond of as a manager. He, he had a terrible time of it last time he was in charge of Spartak. But I just—I mean, I was—we've got a—we've got a quite a close relationship with Pro Spartak, a Russian website, and probably one of the best uh, fan voices on Spartak. In a in a, in a set of questions that went on their site that's in Russian, uh, I was I was I was I was discussing them and I said uh, I was asked what do you think Kononov will achieve and I think I basically said nothing. I mean, what? How could he achieve it when he won't have control of the transfers? Won't have control of the budget? He's got a squad which has been ripped of the two best players via a transfer and deadline day and an injury to Kijo as well, and it's just. It's safe because it, it does, I agree, Tom, it does need to be a safe appointment. But I think any appointment would have only ever been safe like this and not because of what's necessary to turn Spartak around, but because of Fadoon, because he doesn't want anybody like Valeri Carpen, who's a huge character. I mean, he, he did approach Carpen, but Carpen's a huge character, just like Carrera. Whereas Kononov's just safe for Spartak, which to can be a good thing because I just need stability right now. But it's just, I just wouldn't have expected anything else, to be honest. Any, like, you're not going to get a firebrand to come in. It's, it's somebody that Fadun can control more than anything else. And David, I mean, we've talked a lot about the um, the short term. Sorry, I've left you, left you, neglected you for a while, but I thought I'd better get a couple of points on James there. But, um, so I'm looking at the table now. We've got uh, Spartak currently ninth, like I said earlier. They're six points off the Champions League spots and four off the Europa League spots. So, I mean, James says he won't achieve anything. Obviously, that's sort of long-term, and I appreciate that. But what do you think they'll get to... I mean, it's really sort of get your crystal ball out time, and it's a bit unpredictable, obviously, because this is Spartak and Russia. But w- where do you see them seeing now with this appointment? Uh it's tricky, obviously, as James said, they lost Hugo earlier on this season, and he, since then, they've only kept one league clean sheet since Hugo uh, was injured, and only one clean sheet um, out. Well, the second clean sheet they kept. No, that's that's complete rubbish. They've only kept one clean sheet in total. That was in the Europa League up at uh, Ibrox against the Rangers. They haven't kept a clean sheet in the league since Hugo went out with his a uh, crucial ligament injury, and before that, they'd kept I think five clean sheets out of their first six or seven matches. So it shows how big of an influence he was on their defence at the start of the season. Because um, they had some tough games. They, you know, I think they kept a clean sheet against Zenit at the start there uh, among them. 
so that's that's had a big impact on them. Obviously, they they've been struggling in the Europa League. They got that win against Rangers um, in the last match day, um, having drawn against Rangers and Villarreal uh, in the previous games and lost to Rapid Vienna in the first one. Uh, they've really got to get the win against Rapid Vienna in at home to give themselves a real chance. I mean, you, you don't see them going to Spain and getting a win in Villarreal. So they get a win against Rapid Vienna. They got a chance of uh, going through the group, I believe. Uh, so they really have to do that if they want a chance. Domestically, it's been a very competitive season. No team is standing out, really. Zenit had been at the start, but they dropped off a bit. So no team standing out. And then you've got this big group of teams below them, including some surprise teams like Rostov, Rubin and Oldenburg, who are having you know, decent seasons in comparison to clubs like uh, Siska, Lokomotiv, Spartak, of course, who are sort of un- all underperforming. Um, so you've got a lot of competitions for those four spots outside the title. Um, and so I think anything goes, really. Even Spartak are not out of it yet, considering the quality of players they've got. Kornov can come in and have good positive positive impact, especially before the winter break. Um, it gives them a real fighting chance. And then, you know, you see what see what you can get up to in the January chance window or just get that three-month winter break to really gel with the squad and get them playing the way he wants to. Um, and they can have a real decent chance at maybe making a late shot because, you know, uh, you've got anywhere in the top five, potentially top six, depending on how the Russian Cup goes. Obviously, there's a lot of Premier League teams left in that this season. I think even Spartak are still in it, if I recall. So they've got a chance of getting into Europe, even through that avenue as well. Um, so I think I think he's got... I think he's got a chance of getting something that the board would be happy with uh, this season. Um, but it's going to be a tricky one because it's, it's very competitive... Uh, in that little block below the top this season. And just just stay with you, David, just switching it slightly, what does this uh, Kononov leaving now do for Arsenal Tula, do you think? Um, was, uh, I think they've appointed uh, Cherovchenko, the former locomotive coach. Um, yeah, they have. Yeah. So that'll be an interesting one there. Um, the squad's, you know, they've got a good squad, especially in the attacking front line. They've got uh, Kangvar, they've got Georgievich, who I know you're a fan of from his Zenit times, and uh, they've got uh, Bakayev, who's on loan from Spartak. Um, you wonder if Kononov will take him back in January because he's had a very good season. Um, and they've got, a, you know, they've got a, they've got just a solid team. Every line of their team, you can pick up players who are, you know, who are probably good enough to play for one of the top teams somewhere. Um, so I don't think I, oh, I sort of hope that it's not going to affect them too badly. Obviously, they've. They've been up and down there. I think their waveform this season has been pretty terrible, but they've been pretty solid at home. Um, so I think I think they'll be okay. I don't think it'll affect them too much. Um, hopefully they'll stay in and around where they are, which I think is, I don't know, 10th? I want to say 10th. I haven't got the table in front of me. Um, they're, so they're, 11th, think, they're 11th at the moment. Okay, so, 11th. Yeah. So that's not, it's not too bad, I think. I, I, I say I don't have the points. I don't know how close they are. I know it's very tightly bunched around uh, the mid-table area. I can't imagine they're any more than like six points from like sixth place, for example. Um, so yeah, I don't think it's going to affect them too bad. They've got the quality there, and they've got the team. are going to know how to play even with an even under a new manager. They're going to know what's going to work against certain teams with what they've got. You know, they had that good win against Spartak, which led to uh, Carrera being sacked just a few weeks ago. Um, so yeah, I think I think they'll be okay. They've got enough going for them, even with the new manager uh, coming in. 
Yeah, they're, sorry, they're on 17 points and that makes them six off uh, the Europa League spots. And James, just on the final word on the topic to you now. Where, I asked the question today, but I'll ask it to you so you can have the last word. Um, where do you see Spartak finishing this season? What what would be a good finish in this context? It, they should be aiming for fifth or higher at Spartak. But European qualifications be all and end all, really, with the finances that are in the game at the moment. Um, realistically, I think they'll only qualify for Europe because of Ruben Kazan. <laughs> if Ruben finished in the top five, like, see, I think Rostov will probably drop down at some point unless they do another crazy season. But if Ruben dropping in the top five, they, they obviously can't, um, can't, can't qualify for Europe as things stand. So that might be a, a little lucky reprieve for Spartak. But I think fifth, sixth is probably the very best they can hope for. Kononov's first job now is to is just reunite the side, decide what to do with Grushikov, which I think he should get rid of him, take him out of the team because it it it. it the irate, like the anger and hatred from the fans right now, is at such an extent where I don't think his career as Spartak's going to be turned around whatsoever. He's been linked to Krasnodar and other other teams. He just needs to get him out of the get him out of the club as soon as possible. But away from that, a little bit longer term for the season, he needs to sort that attack out. Only Zilouish has scored more than one goal for Spartak this season. The second top scorer still Promes with one along with every other player who scored, but only one. I mean, so he needs to sort that attack out right now. And I agree with David as well. I think getting Bakay, recalling Bakayev might be an interesting one. It's obviously essentially a free, free, like it's going to cost them basically nothing to recall him. And there might be a little bit of impetus that they might need. He's had a very, he's had a very good season so far. And obviously Lomovitsky and Tashai have a disappointment. But one thing I am a little bit uh, optimistic about with, with Kononov is a. Uh, He's, he's very keen on using youngsters and blizzing youth. And obviously Spartak with Maximenko, uh, Raskasov, Lomovitsky, Pantaleev, uh, Ignatov have all played quite a lot this season. And uh, obviously Daniel Polybalinov was on the bench for the first time against the in the loss to Ufa. So it, it's, it's good to see that they have got a coach who's going to give youth a chance and they will continue giving these youngsters a chance. Because Riancho in the last game just reverted to type and put every single person with a walking stick over the age of 30 in the starting lineup. Like even Rebrov and Yashinka all returned to, start, to the starting 11. So hopefully he can, Kononov can continue putting his faith in the youngsters. I mean, he's probably going to be forced to anyway. But I don't know. I would say fifth or sixth at best. Okay, so let's move on to something. I don't know whether it's similarly disappointing, but overall, but last week has been. That's the Russian national team, of course, um, lost their final UEFA Nations League match uh, 2-0 to Sweden, which means they finished second in B2 and actually only missed out on top spot and promotion by one goal to Sweden. So, David, um, thoughts on the game first, primarily against the Swedish loss there? Um, first half was not good uh, from what I saw. I think I missed the first sort of quarter of an hour or so um the sweden were thoroughly on top and uh, they deserved their lead even though it came from quite a lucky uh, corner kick the uh, ball just fell to lindelof and he had a easy relatively easy finish um but they had they had dominated possession they russia had barely were able to get out of their half and when they did get forward forward it didn't last very long um so going in you know if they could have kept it in the only half time then you'd have had a bit more hope for them uh, but conceding just before half time, 
and it was deservedly. Um, it was a big blow. And then second half, Russia did turn it around. They made the sub at half time. Uh, Kambalov on for Polos, uh, which was an interesting one because it's obviously a defensive mid for an attacker, but it worked. Um, Russia really dominated the game until about the 70th minute. Um, they were creating some good chances, getting a lot of possession. I thought Zuba was really good up front um, in terms of holding up the ball. But they were just not able to get that creative, that last bit of creativity they needed to get, you know, a chance. Zuba was doing so much ball, holding up on the ball, you know, drifting out wide and stuff that he was never in the box where he needed to be. Um, and you could see they were missing players like Golovin and uh, Cheryshev who were going to run off him regularly. And then once the second goal went in, um, you know, one of Sweden's first and only attacks of that half, you know, uh, it was it was pretty much game over from there. You couldn't see Russia getting anything. They did have one good chance, I seem, uh, seem to recall. Um, a couple of nice dummies on the edge of the box. And I think it was uh, Yorokin Kuzayev, Kambalov. One of, the, one of the holding midfielders came flying in with a shot, which was blocked. Um, you could see it was going goalwards, which would have, you know, would have made it a nice tense finish at least. But uh, made to pay for the poor first half and uh, the lack of uh, creativity in that good spell in the second half, uh, unfortunately. So, I mean, James, we, I mean, David's described brilliantly the game there. But looking at the UEFA Nations League overall here, just just a point to you first, and then I'm going to make a similar point to David, which you might actually make yourself, but we'll see. Um, is that what? How have Russia coped now? Because they did so well in their home World Cup, of course. How do you think the national team and, of course, the manager Stanislav Cherchesov have coped with that sort of? I don't know, the spotlight coming off them a bit and, you know, the the, the downhill, you know, the, the blues after the World Cup, if you like. Yeah, the post-World Cup blues. It was, but they've coped very well at first. I mean, they've, they fell literally quite, quite literally the last hurdle. I mean, they'd had a, they'd had a brilliant nation's league up until this point, essentially. I mean, playing very good football, getting some strong results, home and away. And then, unfortunately, the very, the very last 90 minutes, they just succumbed. And I think they succumbed down to the... They just couldn't compensate for the for the absences. I mean, it was a Golovin, Zagoyev, Zobnin, Cherishev, and Mario Fernandez all injured. Mm. These are not just five key players. These are probably five of Russia's five Russia's five most important players aside from Zuba. And they just the people who were replacing with Churchsov had like a little gamble of of a obviously Yerakin was brought in, Polos was brought in, Ianov and Kazayev around all around Kaczynski. and this. I just fail to see where the creativity is in that midfield. Like when you when you lose, I mean Zagoyev, Zobnin, and Cherishev are glass cannons. They're brilliant, very creative footballers, but they struggle with injuries a lot. And you replace them with kind of like just a workman like a workman like team that just didn't really break them down, break Sweden down very well. But aside from that, on back onto the post World Cup Blues, but I mean they've done terrifically well throughout the whole of the Nations League you can't really you can't really you can't really count for how difficult it is coming back of like the, the, the physical strain the mental strain more than physical strain of like the, the euphoria of the World Cup like they obviously played through adrenaline for most of the games and the success of it there was always going to be a little bit of a downturn but they've, they've kind of backed on those performances very well to an extent with previous games in the Nations League and Deserved, deserved the, the the promotion at the end, I believe. But just Sweden got there in old the old school Swedish fashion of just sit deep counter and hit Russia. Well, in the second half, anyway. But 
I do sympathise with with the team. I mean, if if those five players were fit, I think they would have beat Sweden or would have at least got the point, which was enough to enough to win, and there would be no issue anyway. But I think the big thing is uh, it's Zuba. Zuba's. I, I thought Zuba had a decent game, but you can tell he's he's absolutely knackered. He he just needs a break. I mean, he went straight from a long season to to the World Cup, and now back into the back into the game. I mean, back into playing for Zenit week in week out after playing for Arsenal week in week out towards the end of last season, and then Starman in Russia. I mean, every time you see him on TV anywhere, or, like meeting fans. Like, Everybody's going absolutely crazy. The bloke is a bona fide legend right now, so I, I just think he needs a little bit of a, a bit of a rest, to be honest, just a just a fortnight off or a month off. But aside from that, I can't really. It, it's a breath of fresh air to be talking about the national team and be optimistic again for the first time in what feels like an age. So, David, I mean, we've we've heard a lot about the nation's league, of course, during and after it's just concluded, and people debating whether it's a good thing or not. So, what do you think? Of, do you think the Nations League benefits a team like Russia? So not one of those top teams, because obviously being in England, we hear a lot, because uh, England are in the top league, we hear a lot about that, sort of whether it's too much competitive football. But actually, for the teams below that, like Russia, perhaps not right at the bottom, because obviously people talk about benefits for them, but those sort of middle teams, like Russia, does it benefit them? Yeah, definitely, I think so. Um, obviously... For the years building up to the World Cup, Russia had no competitive football whatsoever because they didn't have to qualify. They had the World Cup where they've done well. They've had some retirements. They've had some injuries. But it still gives them some actual competitive games where you're not playing teams who are too weak and you know you're just going to walk over. You're not going to play teams who you know are too strong and they're going to batter you. You're playing teams who, in theory, should be at a very similar level to you and who you can actually have a good competitive game with where... You're fighting hard to win, but you know you've actually got a chance to win. And uh, yeah, it's, it's nice. It does bring that. I mean, I think the reaction in general has been very positive. You know, the lack of international friendlies and actually giving an edge to some of these games happening in uh, the winter international breaks is nice. And I think uh, if it wasn't for these injuries, obviously Russia would have had a fairly decent shot at getting promoted. I think they've done very well, uh, all things considered. You know that all the, res- the retirements, the injuries, and the fact they were able to keep their form up outside of the World Cup uh, was nice. Um, so yeah, I think I think the whole thing in general, throughout, you know, all the teams can find benefits from it. Uh, I, I struggle to look at it and find any sort of real negatives. Like, like now, off the top of my head, I can't think of anything that would negatively affect Russia um, from this. Obviously, you can get injuries for their. If maybe a player gets injured, then they'll be injured in the club season. But so far, it's actually all been the other way around. Um, Russia's squad was weakened due to injuries at club level. I've got my own personal thoughts on these, the way the games are structured week in, week out. And I feel part of the reason for the Nations League is UEFA and the TV companies being able to now say, in a backwards way, hide the fact that they've now got football from an international break on a... Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday night. Like it's 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 five or six days straight of constant football, and I don't like that. Uh, I'm inherently against football and television in general, and TV companies and all that. Obviously, but looking at the competition itself, I'm I think it's quite it's it's, it's kind of it's 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 very it's an enjoyable competition. I mean, if you look in, let's just take England's group for example, because I'm English myself. Um, all three of England, Croatia and Spain 
could have won <laughs> in that final match, and two of the three could have got relegated because of the because mo- the most of the groups have the three three team structure. So it's it's kind of bringing back it's it's making international breaks more relevant. <laughs> so I know a lot of people there's obviously the the jokes and going around about the international break being irrelevant, but myself I'm a little bit of an apologist over it anyway. I quite I quite enjoy an international break. Especially because my team still play now we're in League One, <laughs> but um, now the competition itself I think works well. I think they do need to release a little a few a few more details on the finer points. I mean, myself and David were discussing before we went live on air that at, at the end of this sort of at the end of the finals next June in Portugal, will the all four leagues then be redrawn? I presume it will be, but like a whole redraw of all new groups to do again for the next time. But so far, so good. I can't really complain. It's Yes, it, people are playing a lot of games now, but they would have played that, those games anyway. They're just replacing them with more relevant, more competitive and crucially more interesting fixtures. So ge- generally, just a quick word on you all in terms of the, uh, the Nations League. Yes or no? David, R- Russia benefits from the Nations League and it's a good format. Yes, no? Yes. And James? Yes. Perfect. We're all we're in perfect harmony. And also, just to point on your League One thing, don't pretend that you're not loving the ride in League One with Sunderland at the moment. <laughs> it's fantastic. Yeah. More more come away was your latest message to me for somewhere. I can't remember what that was about now, but I that sounds like a really nice away trip, actually. But... It's not too bad. No. I mean, not on the checker trade. <laughs> it was actually... Uh, we went to Plymouth away recently, a little bit off topic, and I'll not be too long, but we went to Plymouth away recently and had a nice little exchange with Andrew, one of the writers. Andrew Flint, obviously, for the guys listening. And uh, yeah. Andrew's, Andrew's nice nice little retort to me, tweeting about going to Plymouth away and being how far that is for an Englishman in an away game. And Andrew came back with that he makes the same journey every single week to go to Ural home games. Just as, as a public service reminder, don't move to Siberia. Yeah, that, that's true. Yeah, I mean, this is this is a massive criticism. David, get in on this criticism, Andrew. I'm sure he'll appreciate. It. But you know, don't complain about it. You know, you do do it off your own back. Don't complain about it. You love it, really. You wouldn't do it if you didn't love it. Anyway, <laughs> moving on to our final final topic. This is this is slightly different to what we've uh, been going through, but obviously still Russian football related. Don't worry. Um, and that is the academy at Chertanova, who are currently playing in the second division of Russian football. We've had a couple of articles about it on the website recently. One about by David, which is why we've decided to discuss it today. And also we've had a uh, an interview with the director uh, Nikolai Larin. Excuse me, um, David. Just uh, just for the listeners who haven't read the piece yet, and if you haven't, you should go and read it as soon as this podcast finishes. Just give people a quick outline to sort of the academy and the structure and things. Okay, so. Chertanovo, as I will call them, because I did not know that was the correct pronunciation, uh, are a club who are currently in Russia's second tier, uh, having just been promoted uh, the season before. Um, and they only will use uh, academy players. So quite similar to Athletic Bilbao in Spain, who will only use bass players, except they will only use players who have come out of their own academy. Uh, so this season, currently... They have the youngest squad in the Feniel. From what I've, I did was doing some research last week, and from what I can tell, they're the youngest professional squad in Europe who aren't a B team or a reserve team. So you go to clubs like Porto B or Liefering in Austria, who are a subsidy of uh, Red Bull Salzburg. They're they're younger, but um, 
obviously they're B teams or reserve teams. Chelton over there are their own sole uh, team. Uh, so yeah, they only use the they're only using uh, academy players. The youngest team in the league by far, well, not by far, but the youngest team in the league, uh, one of the youngest teams in Europe, and uh, having only just been promoted from the third tier this season. They're currently sixth, uh, but with Crestnar two above them, which means they've only one place off uh, a promotion playoff spot uh, to potentially move into the Premier League next season. Uh, as a result of their promotion, they've also got a Chertanovo two or Chertanovo B side playing in the third tier, uh, who, are, as I'm aware, as far as I'm aware, are also performing quite well with even younger players still. Uh, so yes, that that's the situation in Chernovo. Um, they have a lot of young, talented players. Obviously, based in southern Moscow, a lot of their players are in the Russian teams from all the way down from under fifteen level all the way up to under twenty one level. Uh, they've got play, players in all of those teams, and uh, yeah, they are starting to attract some real attention from Russia and Europe, uh, especially after the World Cup. I mean, yeah, I mean, you talk about attracting that attention. We've seen um, an academy player there, Sergei Pinyaev, uh, going on travel, uh, trial excuse me, at Manchester United. And generally, yep. James, we've heard a lot about Chertanovo. By the way, David, I checked it with a, a native speaker beforehand. So I wouldn't have, I just thought, oh, God, I better double check this. Uh, yeah, but it's fine. Just call them what you want. As we, we all know what you're talking about. It's fine. Um, but James, I mean, what do you think is... Because we talk a lot about Krasnodar's academy, for example. What do you think... Is the what makes Chertanova different? It's it, I mean it's unique. In the interview we have with Nikolai Larin, the director, which is an excellent piece by by a writer Hanu, um Larin himself says that it's it, it, it's a unique project not only in Russia but in all of Europe. And you can't can't you can't but disagree with that really. I mean there's literally nowhere else that does it. Like even Athletic Bilbao with the brilliant structure that they've got, even they still Sign, sign players for huge amounts of money. I mean, it, it's it's what's interesting is Chertanovo is so unique and kind of successful because they don't really see themselves as a business or a football club, which I think might actually be to a detriment in the coming years, especially if they do get promoted to the Premier League sooner rather than later. I mean, but the the, the whenever you're discussing it with with the people at Chertanovo, or if you go over, they'll, they'll, they'll describe themselves more as an academy as a church, an educational institution is the exact words that Lauren himself uses. And he keeps claiming that they're always punching above all, or punching above their weight. But that's, I think that's probably, even though it might cause financial issues in the future, it's, it's probably one of the things that makes them most unique. They, they, they come constantly focusing on what's best for the players, not, not just, oh, can we sell this guy on for this amount of money? It's, it's about genuine development. Like Pinayev got, I think he got when he went over at Manchester United. This isn't just for like, oh, let's let's oh look at us, we're we're the little team from Moscow sending players to Manchester United. They genuinely do care about the development of these players. It's it's actually very refreshing to see in a in a country where academy systems in general are just ignored. I mean, academy systems are glorified B teams for most clubs. They're just kind of un unprotected commodities where I mean look at players like Georgie Jigia who's captained well, the national uh, Spartak recently and is starting defender for Spartak in the national team he was released by Lokomotiv Moscow wouldn't he be picked up by Amkar for essentially pennies 
and how to re- rework his career from there because he just got completely ignored at Czechoslovakia. That's nothing against local themselves, but you know, I was I think I've mentioned once or twice in the pod in the past, and it's something that really sticks with my mind is that when Toker and Ilya visited Locomotives Academy, they mentioned that there was kind of an obsession with success, an obsession with the trophies. It's not it's not numbers of it's not there's not like records, huge records and blazing on the walls of this is how many the, X amount of players we graduated the first team who then went on to become club legends. It's oh look, we won the Fina L Cup and the under nineteen North Northeastern Moscow Regional Championships in 2006, 7, 8, 9, and ten. Now that's just the complete wrong out- outlook to be to, to focus upon. And I think Chertanovo and Krasnodar are the way forward for Russian football. Laren and Galievsky, what they're setting up is doing more for Russian football than Mutko's ever done. His whole tenure is whatever he's doing now. <laughs> he, he's rumoured to have been uh, just uh, reappointed as president of the RFU, by the way. that I've, I've read that today, and we're recording this on, on Thursday, so just, just for listeners. Christ. Yeah, so uh, we'll have a full discussion on that sometime. But um, <laughs> but actually, you talk, you talk about talk about the development of um, the not just players, but also as, as personalities as well. One of my favourite bits of the interview with Lauren was where they talk about going to different countries to play tournaments. So he uh, talks about Spain, Japan, Italy, Denmark, and even Ireland. And he says, you know, those those sort of international experiences not only develop them as footballers, but also as people. And David, just coming to you, similar to what we've talked about really, but perhaps a, another take on it, is, and James mentioned it very briefly there, how do you think this, specifically this academy, can benefit Russia in the future, the, the national team? Well, I want to I just start with, um, I was on Twitter last night and I, uh, Nikolai Larin tweeted something and I replied to him saying, he tweeted something about the limit and I replied to him saying something back. And he replied back saying that he's very staunchly uh, pro-limit, um, which obviously, as we've discussed many times over the years, that most of the writers, especially Russian Book News, and the general consensus is that the limit is bad and the limit needs to be go or the limit needs to be adjusted. But he is very much pro-limit um, in Russian football. Um, uh, we were talking about Ari, who had uh, obviously debuted for the Russian national team in the winter break, and we saw him being used twice in place of Fedor Chalov, uh, Fyodor Chalov, sorry, who is uh, 20 years older than the Russian Premier League top scorer and... Uh, yeah, this naturalised Brazilian striker was used twice in place of him. And so Laren was saying how he thinks the limit being removed is going to increase these kind of things from happening. It's going to make, it's going to result in more Ari situations, etc., etc. Um, but Chertanova, you know, that is their goal. They say, they've been, on their interview with us, they say their goal is to develop players for Russian clubs and for the Russian national team. They solely want to make Russian football better. They, I think they would actually prefer their players not to go abroad. Um, but I think there's there's only so much they can do. If, you know, If they're developing their players to be in touch with other cultures, their players are going to start to want to go abroad anyway. Um, and now that their club is starting to get some recognition, you know, they are playing in international tournaments regularly. They're starting to play well in these tournaments. They've got players who are playing in uh, international tournaments for the Russian youth teams, uh, attracting attention. I think it's going to be something they can't prevent. Um, but it's definitely something, as you say, can they improve the Russian national team? The answer, I think, is yes. Um, you know, the first the first big rumours of these two guys who 
um, set to move apparently to Spartak Moscow this summer, just because essentially because Chesnova need the money. Uh, they have you know, very limited sponsors, and they they have to sustain themselves somehow. Um, and so it's rumored that they're going to be selling uh, Maxim Glushenkov and Niall Myarov um, to uh, Spartak Moscow for around one million euros, and that I think is around one third of their yearly budget. Um, so, you know, they'll do that. But then, you know, they've got these other kids coming through. As you say, Pinyaev, he's only uh, he's only just turned fourteen. That kid. Uh, he's already had one draw with Man United. He's going to go on trial again uh, this winter as well. And I'm sure there's dozens of other kids just like him all the way through that academy who can easily step into the place of Amurov and Glushenkov and who can go on to improve Chertanovo and uh, the Russia squad for years to come. Um, you know, what, just watching it and getting the opinions of other people watching it, we have uh, a writer for us, Alex, who's... Uh, works very closely with a lot of Scottish football clubs. Um, you know, he loves a couple of the players at Jertsonovo, Zinkovsky, who's uh, one of the older players there, age 22, um, you know, an electric winger. And uh, Glushenkov and uh, Sipchenko, two attackers, really impressed uh, in a youth tournament in Spain earlier this year. So it's, uh, it's definitely a, it's sort of definitely um, on the up, Jertsonovo, and it's, it's a very exciting time for them in general, I think. Yeah, the way Chernovo operates is is interesting. There's kind of a stigma in Russian football now about mental mental health and, and about and it's it's well, not even a stigma. It's just not really ever mentioned, to be quite honest. And Chernovo themselves, the what Lauren said in the interview on the site. If you haven't given it a read yet, give it one. And he said, uh, "I'm convinced Chernovo has created the best conditions in Russia to solve the problem players face when transitioning from the academy to professional football." We trust our players even if they make mistakes, and that's something that does not happen in other professional clubs. Already our players are wanted by Russia's leading clubs. The most, like, the, but the really interesting part about that is the trust in the players. Just Novo, looking at, the, looking at the development of players from a completely different perspective, do even Krasnodar aren't looking at, at that level quite yet, and Krasnodar's technical coaching is the best in the country. So the, it's just a fascinating, really interesting, and thankfully successful enterprise but I just hope it, so so many other clubs can see this as like a guiding light for, for how to operate in the future what a nice way to end the podcast actually the really nice positive message after our bit of gloom about Spartak and Russia we've ended with some nice positivity so uh, thanks again to my two guests thank, thank you David that's fantastic as per usual no problem good to be on and good stuff and thanks to you James as well thank you and and actually, James, while while you're still here, um, just outside of those uh, pieces we mentioned about the uh, Chertanov and the academy and everything, what what else have we got on on the website that the reader should be looking out for? Yes, so imminently it'll be a piece by uh, Richard on a Spartak, like an analysis of Spartak's recent form uh, on the Kolonov, the signing of Kolonov, and what where they can go from here and what to do from here. Uh, kind of like a first first steps that Kolonov should take, sort of piece. Uh, after that, it'll be a, we'll be continuing the football league series, looking at the how each of the clubs mentioned in the current football league's exposure, how all the Russian sides are involved and why they were involved. And actually, we've got a nice little historical piece from Vitali as well, and Vladimir Fedotov, who's the son of obviously Suska legend himself as well, Grigory Fedotov, and is uh, actually interestingly one of the few footballers to be loved and revered by Suska and Spartak fans. 
And when he passed away, thousands of Siska and Spartak fans themselves actually came together at his mural at the VEB Arena and, and like mourned together, like in complete peace. So Fedotov Jr. Is, is a really interesting person in a sport, not just uh, Siska's history, but in the history of Russian football in general. So look, for, look out for that probably over the next coming days, around the weekend sort of time. And lovely stuff. Thanks, James. And, of course, do keep an eye on the, the website, as you know by now. It's russianfootballnews.com. Uh, Twitter handle, at russfootballnews. That's Russ with one S, by the way, just in case you haven't followed it already. So do follow that. And, of course, the Russian Football News Facebook page. The uh, the Predictions League is back up and running after Andrew overcame some technical problems and some rather sinister ones, by the sounds of it, um, with his Facebook account. So that's back up and running. So, again, russianfootballnews.com, Russ Football News Twitter, and Russian Football News Facebook page. And do, of course, keep looking at the website for the upcoming pieces that James mentions. It's your one-stop shop for everything Russian football. So thank you for listening, and we will see you on the next podcast. Идет футбольный матч, летит на поле мяч.